You're listening to a podcast by Bible Truth Feed, brought to you by Christadelphianvideo.org. It's a podcast for Christadelphians and those seeking Bible truth. This episode is called Afghanistan, Russia, and the Imminent Invasion of Israel. It's presented by Brother Jonathan Bowen from Brantford, Ontario. And it looks at how Russia is looking to fill the Middle East power vacuum that has been left by America. The tragedy in Afghanistan is horrific, there is no doubt. But a greater geopolitical move is going on behind the scenes because Russia is filling in all the cracks in the Middle East left by the American withdrawal and the influence that it lost when the Soviet Union collapsed has been regained and it has military and political unions with most of the nation standing between it and Israel. The days of Russia's turning back are over and it's beginning its advance that will ultimately lead to the great battle of Armageddon. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please do get in touch. We really appreciate all the comments we get from you. It helps us to then think about what other material to produce for you. But until next time, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And may God bless you in your studies and your walk toward his kingdom. Amen. Well, thanks, Brother Scott, and good evening, brothers and sisters and young people. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the situation that has been unfolding uh, in the Middle East over the last uh, several months, I guess you could say, in fact, 20 years or so, um, specifically in relation to Afghanistan, but that whole region and Russia's involvement in it. If you open your Bibles to begin with, just to um, Ezekiel chapter 38, we have there the section that is kind of the one that is our go-to. It was our readings just the other day. Um, Ezekiel chapter 38 in verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief, or the the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, as some translations will have, and I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws and bring thee forth and all of thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And with them we see here Persia and Ethiopia, Libya, and of course uh, they're there with shield and helmet, so they're armed. And Gomer and the, with his bands in the house of Tagarma, the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with him. So we have here... This array of nations, which we've looked at many times, Rosh being Russia, Meshach, related with the Muscovites, Moscow, uh, Tobolsk, uh, Tubal, uh, Persia, the ancient name for Iran, um, Ethiopia and Libya, uh, both of those recognizable to us today, Ethiopia covering also the area of Sudan, as we would know it in ancient times, um, and Tagarma, which is the area um, basically of the Caucasus and, and north. So... These are the nations that are outlined there, and here's a map basically that kind of gives you a rundown of these two great hordes. And the the second one comes up in verse 13, where we have uh, a contest, or not a contest, but a a, um, protest in verse 13. Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions thereof, uh, bring this protest saying, are thou come to take a spoil, to gather a, the company, to take a prey, to carry away silver and cattle, or silver gold away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. So those are the nations, and it's not our subject tonight to look at them. Um, just to note that they're also split into a division um, in Daniel as well. But it's after many days thou shalt be visited, and in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So we know there um, that we are in this time period. 
and we have been seeing the gathering of Israel back to its land as a community long before I was born. Um, and now we see Russia with the nations also preparing itself as we're going to look at tonight. Now, it, we read there, thou shalt descend and come like a storm, and thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Now, this is paralleled, as we said, in the book of Daniel. So if you turn over to Daniel chapter 11, and we're just going to pick up on the last few verses. It's a, a great long saga through Daniel chapter 11, as we have this king of the south and the king of the north. They're the nations, basically, that inhabited the area of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, uh, the, the um, successors to the Greek empire. And it's this, this teeter-totter backwards and forwards between these two geographical areas. So in Daniel chapter 11, and if we come in verse 40, we're again reading about the time of the end. Shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And again, it's another subject altogether, but the king of the south there is that same southern confederacy that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 13. And the king of the north is the northern confederacy, Gog and all his bands. Um, and the hymn there is actually Turkey, which is like the little, I was going to say piggy in the middle, but I guess it's the turkey in the middle, um, between these two as they are um, contesting backwards and forwards, or the Ottoman Turks and the people who possess that area. And of course, during this whole conflagration, he will enter into the countries and uh, shall overflow and pass over, and he shall enter also into the glorious land. So when that king of the north comes down, he is going to overflow, and he's going to enter into the glorious land, which, of course, is the land of Israel, and that parallels Ezekiel chapter 38. So those are the nations that the Bible lays out for us are involved in this great game in the, the latter days, right, in the end of time. So what we want to do is kind of back up and look a little bit at the current events that are going on in the Middle East and kind of step back from that a ways as well to see the background to some of these events. So when we look at this, and if we were to step back and into our history books and we were to look at, let's say, 1917, that's when the Russian Empire ended and the USSR was created. And of course, it took over other nations like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and, and down close to Afghanistan. Um, and then, of course, during the Second World War, much of Eastern Europe was captured from the Germans and became part of the Soviet sphere in what was called the Warsaw Pact. And this, again, was joined with Tito and his, uh, his Yugoslavia, as it was called back then. And um, at the same time, bring, brought onto the same sphere of influence was the Chinese and the Mongolian nation uh, to the south of Russia. And so all of those nations combined together right after the Second World War. And in 1944, we also had Syria and Iraq falling under the Soviet sphere of influence as um, these nations basically aligned themselves with the different great powers in the world. Um, and it wouldn't be long, 1949, that Tito would take Yugoslavia out of the Warsaw Pact. Um, but in 1950, uh, there was a, a revolution in Egypt, and Gamal Abdel Nasser took over, and he joined this Soviet sphere of influence. And then we also had North Korea and North Vietnam join them. And uh, in 1950, that is, 1960, they added uh, Laos. And, um, and at the end of this period, at the end of 1960, China would actually drop out of the sphere of influence and, and have its own brand of communism and kind of go its own way. But that was the USSR um, that many of us in the room grew up with. That was the way it was when I went to school and I was in high school, um, the great Soviet empire, as it was called, that basically was this massive landmass and the, the great game was between the Eastern power of the Soviet Empire and the Western power of America and Britain and Canada and the NATO alliance to basically offset this great host. <laughs> so when you look at that whole situation and we see how this would take place, um, what we did find, though, is that uh, over a period of time, you would see this great power trying to influence specifically 
the Middle East. I mean, it was trying to influence all over the world, but specifically the Middle East. And Michael Oren, in a book called Six Days of War, writing about the Israeli uh, War of 1967, um, basically tells us about what we call the paw prints in the sand. The Soviets had invested massively in the Middle East, about two billion, and this is 1956 actually, two billion military aid alone, 1,700 tanks, 2,400 artillery pieces, 500 jets, 14,000 advisors. Um, and 43% uh, of that military hardware was in Egypt. So they were heavily involved in the Egyptian area. And uh, their, their policy hasn't really changed a whole lot. This was uh, later on in the book. He says, the Soviets appeared to want to maintain a low boil in the Middle East, aiming for tension without explosion for small rather than big trouble. And the reason was, um, if there was trouble in the Middle East, if they could keep Assad and Hussein and Faisal and Nasser, all the, the Arabic leaders surrounding Israel, keeping that pot boiling, guess what goes up? The price of oil. And the Soviet economy was very heavily reliant on the price of oil. And so they wanted to keep the pot boiling on the stove, but not boiling over, although it obviously didn't exactly go according to plan because the Six-Day War would see Israel wipe out the armies of all of those who came against it. Now, when we look at that, um, going back to what uh, Oren would, would write about, he tells us basically that the 15% um, of Egyptians' military hardware, about 2 uh, billion worth, was destroyed. All but, sorry, 15%. So 90 or 85% of it was, was destroyed. And the Soviets swiftly replenished Israel or Egypt's and Syria's MiGs. And basically, they rearmed them without any preconditions. And uh, Nasser would die, but you can see the gentleman on the right-hand side there. That is the next guy, Anwar Sadat, who would become the next uh, prime minister or president of, of Egypt. And uh, on the left-hand side there, I believe, is Khrushchev, the leader of Russia. So these guys were all in this together, and Russia was putting its influence over the Middle East. And so we would see, in 1969, um, Libya would be overtaken by Muammar Gaddafi, and uh, the Soviets were the first to recognize this new regime. Uh, Sudan also came under the Soviet sphere in 1969. It speaks to the ancient name of Ethiopia, along with what would be Ethiopia in the south and southern Sudan. Um, Cambodia, back in the, the Asian area, would be joined in. Um, well, it's actually Vietnam after the, the, uh, the Americans lost the Vietnam War, or they withdrew from there. It became a Soviet sphere as well. And then Cambodia would join in and uh, the Khmer Rouge would come to, plow, come to power. It was renamed Kampuchea for a while, um, and it was under the Soviet sphere by 1979. And then in 1978, this is when Afghanistan kind of became involved in these things. There would be a revolution in Afghanistan that basically brought to power a pro-communist regime um, and again brought it under the Soviet sphere and Iran underwent a, a, a different revolution this time. It was an Islamic revolution. Um, but the Soviets, quick to try and wrest it from American presence, would also bring it under their sphere, and they would recognize it, and they would basically be the first country to recognize the new um, Republic of, of Iran, the Islamic Revolutionary Republic, and try to have cozy relations with it. And the whole idea was to you know, keep the West out of the Middle East. The more they could influence these nations and, and cozy up with them, the harder it was for America and its allies to be involved. Um, but then, in 1979, Egypt made peace with Israel and dropped out of the Soviet sphere in the level that it had been before. And this is one of the first uh, great, quote-unquote, peace agreements between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat uh, brought about under President Jimmy Carter. It's been referred to since as a bit of a cold peace, because although they ceased hostilities, there wasn't a whole lot of actual um, connection between the two countries. So in Afghanistan, though, um, it was a very highly religious group of people. Um, the different tribal nations and whatever else were there, and they revolted against this atheistic Soviet communist uh, type of government, and, and basically, 
that the Afghanistan people and the different tribes, the, the Mujahideen as they were called at the time, um, they would basically try and just kick um, uh, the, 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 uh, the Soviet regime out. And so the Soviets, to bolster their influence in the area, brought their armies in, and they invaded Afghanistan at this point in time. And so this is where Afghanistan really came into kind of the modern news more recently. I mean, it had been invaded by the British multiple times and a few others by that going back into the, the 19th and 18th centuries. But the, the Soviets came in in full force, um, and their adversaries were these crazy tribes people called the Mujahideen, uh, guerrilla warfare fighters who would go out and they would fight against them. And they were supported by the CIA. And this guy here, this Charlie, it actually is his name, is Charlie Wilson. He's a U.S. congressman who lobbied the U.S. to support the Mujahideen against the Soviet army. And so they poured in all kinds of um, equipment, uh, money, supported this ragtag group, which would include amongst it a relatively unknown character at the time, a guy named Osama bin Laden, who was the son of a wealthy Arabian family, or Saudi Arabian family. Uh, his father was from Yemen, though, and his mother was actually from Syria. So he wasn't actually Saudi Arabian, other than that's where he was born. His parents were from Yemen and also from Syria. And so he joined the, the, this, this struggle of Muslims around the world against these authoritarian regimes and would help fund the Mujahideen and actually became its chief financial officer. Um, so there's Osama bin Laden. And Reagan put the full force of the CIA uh, behind this effort to basically give the USSR their Vietnam. They'd had a terrible experience in Vietnam and it had drained the US coffers and it had been really disastrous for them. And so they wanted to kind of return in kind the same thing to the Soviets. So they supplied them with things like this Stinger missile here that could be fired by an individual soldier. You didn't need a whole, you know, sort of like missile launching system and all this. It could be carried on a camel or on a horse. And, you know, you don't just have to hop off, sling it on your shoulder. And they took out over 350 planes and helicopters, and it was called a game changer in the war in the Middle East. And so it wouldn't be long that the Soviets, who had rattled in, um, would rattle out under Gorbachev in 1985. After 10 years, uh, they had gotten nowhere, and they were forced to basically retreat and, and head home. So it was in 1985 that Gorbachev um, would bring in his reforms, things like perestroika and glasnost, the idea of perestroika, the internal restructuring of Russia, and glasnost was the idea of giving people freedom um, and a reduction of this old war rhetoric. And so there would be a series of different things that would take place. Uh, Gorbachev would meet with Reagan and they would uh, pursue a nuclear arms treaty in 1986. And then he would meet again with the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, in 1987. In 1988, they actually withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, he met with the Pope uh, in 1989. And then there was this, this whole solidarity movement that kicked in and uh, really just swept over Poland and the Eastern Bloc of Nations. And this was when uh, we were in high school. And it wouldn't be long there would be a coup and Gorbachev would resign, and of course the whole Soviet Union would collapse. So in 1989, the Berlin Wall would come down, and we would see a collapse take place of the Soviet with, uh, Union. So it started with the withdrawal of the Soviet forces from Afghanistan, and then you would have the communist bloc that would fall, those nations on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and of course the Soviet Union would collapse in 1991, uh, it would pass into history, so those groups of nations that were all banded together, and all their client states would consequently all kind of lose their sphere of influence and kind of become somewhat free agents. And a lot of people at that time would think that the, the Soviet Union no longer existed, it was no longer a threat, and there was a lot of discussion, even amongst Christadelphians, like, have we got this wrong? Like, where's this Russia that Brother Thomas and Brother Percy Mansfield talked about? What's happened here? And of course, there's that little passage in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse uh, 4, where the prophet says, I will turn thee back, I'm going to put hooks in thy jaws, and bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses, horsemen, all of them 
uh, with, clothed with all sorts of armor, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, right? So there's going to be this, this temporary arrest, and then there's going to be an invasion. In fact, it's Brother Graham Pierce who writes about this in the book, Russia, the Vatican, and the Invasion of Israel. And what he says is we can expect, we could reasonably then expect a general large-scale reorientation of strategic positions. Britain and the U.S. reestablishing themselves in the Near East, where they had been gone for years. This would bring into, into being the two great power blocks of the King of the North, King of the South, as opposed to East and West, it's now revolved to North and South. Um, this would include cooperations with Israel, possibly an occupation of Egypt again, and at this time, too, relations between Israel and the Arabs may be changing, which, of course, we've seen very much in the last few years. But he goes on to write in his book that he says, look, it's also possible that the presence of the Tarshish power uh, in the land at that time will, will uh, um, in that time, bring some great stability in the area. There is a phrase used twice in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that may have some bearing on this, I will turn thee back. It suggests a, uh, an arresting of Grove's progress, a driving back in order that he can be turned about and brought forth. It may be that it's during this temporary reversal of Gobe's progress that the land is able to dwell safely and at rest. So that was somebody writing in 1970 at the height of the Cold War, looking at it and saying, well, never mind what you see on the world stage right now, this is what the prophecies talk about, and this is therefore what we can expect. And so it would be, according as he had said in 1993, there would be a peace agreement with Arafat, um, again, a fake peace to a degree. Um, and then again, in 1994, there would be the peace agreement between uh, Israel and uh, Jordan, with King Hussein of Jordan and uh, Rabin there. And of course, this would see a great change that would take place in the Middle East. So while all that's going on, Russia, sitting up into the north, having lost all of its different um, sort of lands and whatever else, was desperately trying to reconnect with its allies. And so Kazakhstan had been part of the USSR. Um, it was actually the last of the nations to leave it. And it would join what was started up as a commonwealth of independent states shortly after 1991, along with other neighboring countries. And Russia maintains bases in Kazakhstan. So as quickly as the Iron Curtain and the, the, the Soviet bloc fell and the whole empire collapsed, there was nations that were reconnecting themselves with Russia once again. And uh, what's interesting is this September, the Kazakh Air Force is to receive a fresh shipment of Russian fighters. Um, there's another group of them that are coming in, and there's military bases there, and uh, they're buying their arms from Russia and rearming themselves using Russian technology. So these are all things that are going on right at the very current time. Um, and we're, we're looking back from sort of when the Soviet Union fell to right now and seeing the change that was taking place. Now, Iran had been under the influence of the United States until 1979. So it had been uh, very much a client state of, of the United States and of Britain. The Shah of Iran was propped up by America. Um, his family had been put in place years earlier, and uh, he'd been sort of dubbed ruler of that area, and they had ruled it for quite some period of time. Um, but what happened is basically, um, there was a revolution in 1979, as we talked about, and Iran dropped right out of the Western influence. There was the Iran hostage crisis um, back in 1979, um, where there were many uh, um, people from the embassy that were taken captive there for, for over a year or so. And basically, they fell under the Russian influence, and Russia was the nation that helped it begin its nuclear reactor program in the 1990s. Uh, to build the Bush Air uh, reactor. And it joined in 19, uh, or 2006 the Shanghai Co Cooperation Organization, which is like an Asian-Russian uh, group of nations that have decided they're going to get together to counter the influence of America. Um, and basically, it joined efforts as well in the prevention of the, the overthrow of Bashir Assad in Syria. And they've brought a lot of forces into the area of Syria 
um, since 2011. And it is obviously extremely invested in America's withdrawal from this region because uh, um, Iran has been covered by both sides um, by American influence in Iraq and in Afghanistan um, since the events of 9-11 uh, and so on. And so Russia, uh, having basically tried to get its foothold in this area, also rekindled its relationships with this, the, uh, this nation of Syria uh, in 2000 and, uh, or 1992, I should say, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they did hold on to their base in Tartus off the coast of Syria. Um, there was only five guys there at the time, but they held on to it, and they kept the doors open and the lights on, and I think these guys were just involved in filling the generators and uh, potentially, um, you know, greasing a few doors, but they kept the place um, open. So the Soviets evacuated their fleets from Egypt after they lost influence there uh, to Syria in 1977, but in 2005, they went all out to become Syria's main arms supplier and rebuild this port in Tartus to service their fifth operational squadron. So as the crisis uh, took place, Russia would then bring its forces in and um, would help build the air bases uh, in, in the area of Syria and obviously bolster Bashir Assad, as we've seen in the news in the last little while. Um, and again, it's not like Assad is really worth anything or a helpful ally in the area. If anything, he's a pain in the neck for them. But what's important for them is to have that foothold in the Middle East. And then in 1991, um, and again, this is, this is going back a ways. I mean, we're 2021 now. Um, so this is 30-some years ago. We had the first Gulf War, which at the time, uh, I think I was working at the newspaper in um, British Columbia, and it was pretty exciting. Uh, we'd be in the war room, as we used to call it, that had all the different BBC and CBC and CNN, and, and you could see all this going on, and they were all writing their reports on what was taking place. And this was the first Gulf War where Iraq invaded um, Kuwait. And of course, they were trounced pretty heavily, um, but basically, they had the support of the Soviets, the Russians, uh, giving intelligence to it, uh, during the First World War, or sorry, the First Gulf War, and uh, although they were still reeling from the collapse of the empire, they were doing what they could to help their ally um, Iraq, and um, basically when they invaded Kuwait, though, they were sort of unable to, to do much about this, and America actually made deals with places like Uzbekistan to build an air force base there that they could use to then go bomb um, Iraq and basically fly over and around Iran, but they could use that area to put their influence into the Middle East. So this was right in Russia's underbelly um, and obviously didn't go over too well. But Iraq basically, um, uh, sorry, uh, Iran, Iraq was bolstered by Russia um, and, and basically after the invasion of Kuwait, they, they were able to maintain themselves. And the Uzbeks, um, although they were supported for a while, they eventually kicked the Americans out of um, Uzbekistan. Um, but Tajikistan, so this is just on the, the border there as well. Um, it's a little country. Uh, it signed a treaty with Russia in 1993. And Russia is actually the official language there. 50% of the, the population traveled to Russia to work. So it was added into the Russian sphere of influence as well. So there's been this kind of seesaw going on in this region for some period of time. But then, of course, when the Soviet Union did finally collapse in 1991, um, Gorbachev would be thrown out, the empire would be gone, and back would come the Russian flag, and Yeltsin would take over in 1991. And there's a fairly young-looking Yeltsin compared to what he looked like at the end of his reign. But the economy would collapse, and, and Russia would be written off by many at, during this period of time. And so Yeltsin would run his 10 years, and then this young man, Putin, would come along, who used to be a KGB officer, or the FSB, as they sometimes call it. And um, he would look to restore Russia's economy by turning it into an energy superpower, which is in the news right now, because Europe's all worried about running out of supplies of natural gas, and Russia, of course, has its hand on the, uh, the ability to supply them or not supply them. 
And uh, America has been warning Germany and Europe for years about the reliance on Russian gas, and now we're seeing that come to fruition. And what Yeltsin, or sorry, what Putin did was he took the money that he made from the natural gas and rebuilt the Russian military. And um, he would be followed after two terms by Medvedev, um, who was really his puppet. And it was during this time that there would be the um, South Ossetia War, the area of Georgia. And uh, they would change the constitution to allow Putin basically to end up being more or less president for life now after another change that took place recently. So he came back in 2011, and of course, military buildup was going on all over the place. And in 2014, he annexed the Crimea. But on September the 11th, 2001, the whole world changed. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there. We have another copy. There is the second plane, another passenger plane hitting the World Trade Center. These pictures are frightening indeed. These are just minutes between each other. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. So that would be 2011. So that's 20 years ago, this September the 11th. Um, and those of us who remember that, like it, it's the day that the world changed for pretty much our generation. And of course, we would then have America turn its sights on the Middle East. George Bush had run on a campaign of uh, basically isolationism. Let's get out of the Middle East. Who cares about what they're doing over there? Let's run our own show. But of course, the angels had another idea. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And so it would be that America would move its forces into Afghanistan, and that war would go on for 20 years. They would fight against Afghanistan, the Taliban that were working out of there, um, that had been involved in, in harboring the terrorism, Osama bin Laden, and they would fight against Afghanistan, um, but not only Afghanistan, it would also later include Iraq. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. That night was filled with the shock and awe of American military might. And so that would see America now move not only into Afghanistan, but also into the area of Iraq. And this would see many, many casualties for America in both Afghanistan and Iraq over the next 20 so years. Um, but it would see the toppling of the Soviet, uh, well, the Russian at this point in time, backed regime of Saddam Hussein. They would take out the leader. He was found hiding away in a ditch somewhere. And uh, they brought him to trial, and he was actually hung. And so that was the situation in the Middle East during the, the 2000s. Um, but while all this was going on, Uzbekistan was getting great pressure from Russia um, because they had allowed America to use their country as a base of operations. It was rich in natural gas, and a gigantic power generation station was there that was left over from the Soviet era. And so Russia wanted really badly to, to reconnect ties, and that's exactly what they did. The Uzbek government basically told the Americans to get out in 2005, and they would no longer be able to use Uzbekistan to launch their operations into um, Iraq and Afghanistan. From this desk, seven and a half years ago, President Bush announced the beginning of military operations in Iraq. 
I am announcing that the American combat mission in Iraq has ended. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over, and the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. And so it would be Obama that would bring America out of Iraq. And so very quickly, um, while that was going on, you would see a great struggle again for who was going to be in charge in those areas. Now, while that's going on in the Middle East, in the Crimea, what was called little green men started showing up, and these were actually Russian troops and mercenaries that had no uh, flags on them, but everybody knew that they were Russians, and they basically took over a great area of the Crimea, and um, it would be uh, the, um, the, the area of, of Crimea that would be, it's in Yugoslavia, that would be seceded um, over to Russia, and they had this, this rushed referendum, and they would vote on this, and uh, this would join back up with the Russian Federation once again. And what's interesting is, is that the reason for this, this is the Russian, uh, the Moscow Times, uh, where we read there, Russia intends to use its presence in the Crimea to spearhead Russian interests in the Mediterranean Sea. The Black Sea Fleet stationed in Crimea Sevastopol will be used to extend Russians' presence in long-range sea zones. And in fact, I just saw in the milestones update this last week or so that five um, Russian submarines are now operating in the Mediterranean, which is the most they've had there since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so Russia has been building up in this area, and it added the Crimea, which is just on the toe there underneath uh, Ukraine, to their um, influence once again. So um, while this is all going on, there were large uh, areas of land that were basically also being overrun by this new group in 2014 called ISIS. And so Iraq, having had America just recently leave and actually kind of kick the Americans out, sort of, um, turned around and asked nations to come help them. And America was like, you just threw us out. We're not going to come back and help you. Until Russia said, we'll do it. And of course, they went in uh, guns a-blazing. And then the Americans were like, well, you know, so I guess we've got to go too. And they also send a contingent. But Russia had already got a foothold in this area. And so um, they were helping out both Syria and Iraq and basically uh, moving their forces into the, the, um, those ports in Syria and building air bases in the north of Syria and basically entrenching themselves in this area very quickly. So Iraq quickly fell under Russian support once again. And Bashar al-Assad, um, the, the Syrian president, said, look, it's not really about Syria when this was going on. He says it's all about the future of the world. They, meaning the Russians, want to be a great power that has their own say in the future of this world. They want stability and a political solution. And so Syria, Iran, and Russia see eye to eye regarding this conflict, which of course you've read Ezekiel chapter 38, no kidding. Um, that's the way that the Bible has portrayed this. And so in the newspapers, you had the Russian peace bear, right? So a little, uh, little mask on his face there with a little dove. Um, but Putin's master plan for Syria, says the article, um, promoted by his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is clear uh, that the Western and Arab countries, which form the present anti-Islamic state coalition, should join forces with Assad, and that Iran, Hezbollah, and, and Russia may also join this alliance. So they want their uh, situation to prevail in the Middle East, and so he calls this a Russian bear in sheep's clothing. So when we look at that and we see how this has gone, one of the, the commentators at the time, one of the congressmen had this to say. Here, Russia, yeah, they struggled a little bit to take the Ukraine, didn't they? And there was some conversation about it and all. You knew what they were going to do. They did it. We got a weak president, to, you know. Now, they just kind of waltz over into the Mideast. They were kicked out of the Mideast in 73. And now they're back. They're back. And that is no kidding back. And you watch them, they'll move quickly into there. And uh, they got a new sheriff in town with the Russians uh, coming in the Mideast. So that's his assessment of the situation at the time. 
Um, and so what we've seen in the, in the years since then, so 2017, Turkmenistan, which basically shares the Caspian Sea as a border with Russia, signed an agreement, um, a strategic partnership agreement. So this is a military agreement with Russia in 2017. It's also a country, just incidentally, very rich in, in natural gas uh, resources. Uh, the ISIS forces were pretty much eliminated out of Iraq um, in December of 2020 or 2017. And in January of 2020, the Iraqi parliament voted for a resolution that all US troops would be expelled from Iraq after, of course, Trump had uh, ordered his uh, troops to fire on General Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general on Iraqi soil. And of course, they took him out. So Iraq turned to Russia for the purchase of tanks. And uh, it's interesting, this is Ben Conable. He's a uh, American military strategist. He says, Russia will move like water into the cracks and crevices left by the partial US withdrawal and by its lack of focused US policy. And so he's referring to Obama at this point in time and saying, look, it's gonna be like water into the cracks. And that's exactly what has been taking place. This is an article from September 21st, just a few days ago. Iran joined a rapidly expanded Central Asian security body led by Russia and China on Friday, calling on the countries in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to help it form a mechanism to avert sanctions imposed by the West. So this is a, uh, a body that was formed to take in place those Russian, Chinese, and ex-Soviet states who want to see a bigger role to counterweight the Western influence in the region. So this is a great fight that's been going on for years in this area, over the last 30, 40 years. And so Afghanistan was the last piece in that puzzle. All these other nations that had dropped out of Soviet influence were now back in Russian influence, and Afghanistan was the last piece that was left. And so by 2020, um, America was out of all those other states, and Russia had moved back into all of them with military agreements, bases, uh, security cooperation, but the last holdout was Afghanistan. And then it was that Obama, this is going back to 2014, um, he basically killed um, uh, Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, and then promised to end the mission to Afghanistan. And it was followed in 2020 by President Trump, who announced the US would withdraw troops from Afghanistan. He set a date of March 20, or May 1st of this year. Um, and he reduced the, the troops down to about 2,500. And then when Biden came to power, he delayed the withdrawal of troops till August 31st. Um, but that withdrawal basically was going on. Nobody realized, or nobody really sat down and calculated how fast the Taliban would fill the vacuum the way that they did. What we didn't expect and we didn't foresee was that these soldiers would just so quickly give up the city. The Taliban agreed to give uh, a truce and let these planes fly in and fly everyone out. So in the middle of the night, about 2 a.m., six carrier planes were um, filled with just hundreds of military soldiers east. And it was just a really intense scene of hundreds of people kind of packing in and trying to climb onto these. Well, I'm not entirely sure which desk they are sitting behind, but there it's almost like a family photo shots of the Taliban fighters uh, sitting behind a very grand desk in the middle of the presidential palace. Lightning advance with cities falling and finally Kabul falling to the Taliban fighters as well. There's not a lot of bargaining that the US can do in a situation like this. And it seems like the message was kind of along the lines of what we heard from President Biden earlier today, basically that the US will defend itself if there's any attack and there should be, you know, uh, an evacuation allowed of American personnel and other civilians. It's not specific to people that work with the military or people that were interpreters, you know, it's not just any one subset, it's everyone. Everyone in the country is looking for a way out, some way or another. Watching the horrifying videos coming out of Afghanistan. And so Biden would address the nation due to the shock of all of this, and this is what he had to say. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. 
So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force of some 300,000 strong, incredibly well-equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something the Taliban does not have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. What we could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. Courtesy of Uncle Sam, American supplied armor, now riding under Taliban colors. The spoils of victory being paraded by the new masters of Kandahar. Their ragtag desert army now mechanized, even with the odd helicopter. Propaganda gold for jihadists the world over. August the 31st, 2021, the day the final US military plane left Kabul airport bringing to an end 20 years of American presence in Afghanistan. The US left behind stacks of military equipment from aircraft to guns, adding to the haul of weaponry the Taliban had been gathering in recent months, taken from the Afghan army as it retreated. Taliban members entered the former US military section of the airport just hours after the withdrawal. A video filmed later on on the north side shows an MD-530 helicopter it's one of 43 kept in Afghanistan by the Afghan Air Force. Next to it, a light plane supplied to the Afghan Air Force by the Americans. My job there was as a foreign military sales officer. So I was on the front lines of acquiring the equipment that the Americans provided and turned over to the Afghan army and the Afghan police. I'm going to read to you um, what uh, is so painful for me and so many of the other Afghan veterans who served in that capacity and others who served as a part of the train, advise, and assist, equip effort uh, in helping the Afghans. We now know that due to the negligence of this administration, the Taliban now has access to over $85 billion worth of American military equipment. That includes 75,000 vehicles, over 200 airplanes and helicopters, over 600,000 small arms and light weapons. The Taliban now has more Black Hawk helicopters than 85% of the countries in the world. But they don't just have weapons. They also have night vision goggles, body armor, medical supplies, and unbelievably, unfathomable to, unfathomable to me and so many others, is that the Taliban now has biometric devices which have the fingerprints, eye scans, and the biographical information of the Afghans who helped us over the last 20 years. And here's what we just learned again in the briefing that we just walked out of, is this, this administration still has no plan to get this military equipment or these supplies back. So the enormity of this cache of weapons falling into the hands of, of the Taliban cannot be lost on us. It makes them one of the most well-armed regimes in the entire region. And those Afghans who were trained to fly these planes and helicopters will quickly fall into allegiance with the new government because the new government knows exactly who they are. They have all the information on who these people are. So this, the fear of, of this rapid reversal and the rearming of the Taliban in the region is having repercussions in the neighboring states as well. And what we're seeing is Russia 
rushing in to bolster up those neighboring states from their fear of Taliban uh, reprisals into their areas. And of course, the tragedy in the middle of all this, the first week of September, two suicide bombers uh, blew themselves up uh, in the crowds, killing over 169 Afghans who were there at the airport and 13 US service personnel guarding the area as they were trying to leave, included, of course, amongst them are um, you know, people that we would consider close to us. And our hearts go out to the people now under this brutally oppressive regime. And what we've got to remember is that this is the type of thing that's going to sweep this whole area as Russia comes into control. And when you look at this and you say, well, what exactly has happened with all this stuff? Well, this is September the 3rd of this year. Taliban delivers US military vehicles to Iran. So they've sold them to the Iranians, or a good portion of them. They got so many, they don't know what to do with them. And so they've sold some to the Iranians, and they're worried that the Iranians will use them to basically impersonate US service personnel in other areas, whether it's uh, the area of Syria, or of Iraq, or any areas uh, in, the, in those areas where the US forces still have some kind of a connection. And so that's the situation in the Middle East. And as the last US soldier leaves, and that's the, the picture in there as he was getting on the last transport, Russia is moving quickly into this vacuum that has been left behind. So when you look at this, and we just take stock of this for a moment, Afghanistan is now added to the list where America is out and the Russian influence is back in. Um, this is a newspaper uh, from Japan. Russia looks to fill the Afghanistan power vacuum as the US exits. And the article states, Russia has appointed itself as a mediator in the war-torn country. In fact, this week, it has invited the Taliban to Moscow to join in talks. And it goes on to say, I think many politicians in the West are starting to come to grips with the reality that it is unacceptable to impose alien standards of political life and conduct on other countries and nations. That's what Putin told um, was when he was with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, basically laughing in the face of America, as America's power in the area has waned greatly, and these other nations friendly to Russia are coming into play. The article went on to say, another sign the Kremlin has been preparing itself for the Taliban's return to power President Putin's special envoy to Afghanistan uh, basically said that Moscow's been working with the Taliban contacts for the last seven years, uh, adding that Russia anticipated that the Taliban would play a leading role in the future of Afghanistan. Russia is reaping the rewards from its years of careful preparations for a diplomatic offensive in the event of a US retreat from the country. As indicated by his intervention in the Syrian civil war, Putin aims to have a major footprint in the region. The Kremlin has already started using its power to influence the situation in Afghanistan. That's not written by a Christadelphian. That's written by a Japanese newspaper article. And so here we see Foreign Minister Lavrov as well meeting with an Afghanistan uh, representative. Now, another kind of fallout from this, somewhat unrelated but very related, is a headline that was in the, the European Guardian paper. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan will lead to an EU army, says top diplomat. So there's been lots of talk about the European Union having to now go it alone and put together its own army because they just can't rely on America uh, to do anything about this. So this is, these are all the forces that are in play in the Middle East. When you stop and you just look at, you know, there was that whole underbelly of the Soviet Union that was withdrawn from the Soviet Union. And America was in just about every one of those countries at one point in time. And now America's in none of those countries anymore. And Russia is back in influencing all of those countries. Some literally with troops and bases and security agreements. Another's selling them arms, but basically having their hand into this area of the Middle East. And of course, this is what we've talked about for years. Because we move now from the headlines that have been written to the headlines that haven't been written yet. Russia has had a desire for Turkey, for Constantinople, for this area for years and years. This is Hagia Sophia in Turkey. It was at one point in time the Vatican, 
um, St. Peter's Basilica of the Eastern Orthodox uh, religion. So this was the headquarters where the Orthodox Pope was situated out of, uh, built by Justinian, and, and basically had been there thousands of years, or 1,500 years or something like that. Um, and it was overrun by the Muslims when they took over Turkey in the 1200s and had been a mosque for many years. Now, when Turkey uh, changed its leadership, it became a museum. But just this past year, um, their leader turned it back into a mosque again. And so Russia was really upset by that um, and none too happy with the situation there. So it was taken in 1453 by the Turks. But even today, and this was Brother John Ramson that pointed this out years ago at a Prince George fraternal we were at, when you look at the, the Kremlin, and those are basically the crosses over top of the Kremlin's golded, gilded roofs, you see there that the cross is victorious over the crescent, right? So this is what they've been looking for for years, is when Christianity will be victorious over the Islamic powers of the Middle East. And so God has been telling this from the very beginning. Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the former things of old. I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are yet are not yet done. And saying, my counsel will stand, I will do all my pleasure. So when he said in Ezekiel 38, I will turn thee back, there was a temporary arrest of Russia's power. But then I will bring thee forth. And we've been seeing that rush take place as it's gone into, as that one uh, person stated there, they will fill all the cracks left behind by, by America. And that, of course, is, is the case. So there's the headlines that have yet to be written. This one here, Russia invades Turkey. Um, so this is Daniel 11, verse 40. Uh, at the time of the end, the king of the south will push at him. And the king of the north will come against him, which is the, the Ottoman Turks, like a whirlwind, like a chariot, or with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and shall uh, enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. So that's what we see happening in the very near future, is Russia not just moving into Syria and Iraq, but also into Turkey, and of course, overflowing and passing over. So you've got that whole area moving into the Middle East, um, in great force, they're already in Syria, um, they're already in Iraq, but also into Turkey. And that Israel is going to be overrun, while Jordan will remain under Western protection, which is Daniel 11, verse 40. He will enter also into the glorious land. Many countries shall be overthrown, but some will escape out of his hand. That is Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. And of course, those are the nations that comprise what we would call modern-day Jordan, Amman, being the capital which comes from the name Ammon. And so Israel being overrun, that's the next phase in all of this as those forces come down but are checked by the, uh, the Western powers in the area of Jordan and Saudi Arabia. From here, we're told they're going to go down and they're going to invade Egypt. Daniel 11, verse 41, he will stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt. Um, but they, he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be marching with him, which is what it means there, will be at his steps. And so this is the situation that we see there, them going down from Israel into the land of Egypt and taking that over as well. And of course, in Isaiah 19, we're told about um, the great conflagration that will take place there and, and Egypt being given into the hand of a cruel lord. But uh, there will come tidings out of the east and out of the north, and the Russians will withdraw to target Israel. Um, tidings out of the east and the north will trouble him, and he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And so they will go into the land of Israel and basically target it, and it will be the, the story of Ezekiel chapter 38 as we read there. And it's a terrible situation because Jerusalem is also going to fall, um, Jerusalem will fall, Russia intentional, uh, uh, intentions clearly shown as the city is pillaged, the inhabitants are taken captive. Um, we read of this in Zechariah 14, verse 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go forth into captivity, but there will be a residue that are not um, cut off. 
and of course to dash Muslim hopes, the Russians will headquarter themselves in Jerusalem, uh, the new uh, Temple Mount, and of course there, by the looks of it, they'll be building themselves a church, getting rid of the Dome of the Rock, um, and all Arabic sort of hopes of Russia's being their friends will be dashed at this point in time when he plants the tabernacles of his palace between the, sea, between the seas in that glorious holy mountain. And this, of course, is what we read about in the Bible, that time called Armageddon in Revelation chapter 16, which these nations which go for these, these frog spirits, which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And he gathers them together to, to a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And that's when there's going to be a great earthquake in the Middle East. Um, we've had some earthquakes this past week, but this will be one of the most devastating ones that will ever be seen. And it comes as a result of the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. When his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives in that day, which is before Jerusalem on the east, the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there will be a very great valley, and half the mountains shall remove to the north and half to the, to the south. And this is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 and 5. And we notice there at the end that little phrase, the Lord my God, he who will be mighty ones will come and all the saints are with him. And that's when God intervenes and the Russian forces in the land are annihilated uh, by civil war, by plague, by burning hail, and by a massive earthquake as is described in Ezekiel chapter 38. The great shaking in the land of Israel the mountains being thrown down, the steep places falling, every wall falling to the ground, every man's sword against his brother, there's pestilence and blood and overflowing hail and great hailstones and brimstone. So that's the picture that's given, is that Russian forces in that area then are going to be annihilated out of there completely. And in place, as we read in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And never mind the tabernacles of his palace being between the seas and the holy mountain. God himself is going to establish the temple there through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, that the mountain of the Lord's house, of Yahweh's house, will be established on the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow unto it. And of course, Messiah, the prince, is going to be placed upon that throne. As we read of in Luke chapter 1, the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David, which was in Jerusalem. And so this is the situation as it is going to unravel. And the law is going to for go forth from Zion, as we read from Micah 4, verses 1 to 5, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So all nations are going to go up to Jerusalem and this is what is going to bring about peace on earth. And so they will beat their, their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Because the Lord is going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom upon the earth. And that is kind of like where the news we're seeing right now, this rush of activity as, as Russia's going into the Middle East, fulfilling the prophecies, this is the rest of the prophecies. This is what comes next in the series of events. So the, the thing for us is to prepare ourselves because when this regime comes into place, there's a, there's a wanted ad that's gonna be out there as well. It's actually already out there, wanted kings and priests. And we read about this in Revelation 3.21, to him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and I'm sat down with my father in his throne. And that the thing is, there's qualifications. We read of them in Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And so the message to us then, as we see these events taking place, is it's not just about the news. This, this goes right the way back in history. These are the events that have been unraveling. The angels have been involved in this. Russia has grown. During this time of the Soviet Union, it was turned back, and it is now filling all those voids once again and getting further than it ever did in the past, right into the area of Syria, right into the area of, of Iraq and Iran, um, and having influence over all those nations in that whole region, that the whole underbelly of Russia, that Middle Eastern area, 
On, on the other side of the equation, you have Saudi Arabia and Israel and Jordan and Egypt and, uh, and Yemen and some of those other countries um, that have very recently been very concerned about the pull of forces out of the Middle East and saying, guys, we've got to get together, which answers to part of that southern confederacy, Sheba and Dedan, those nations in that area, because they are fearful of what Russia is going to do. And so um, this job ad comes with some benefits. Uh, kings and priests required to reign over the earth. They must have the right characteristics, but the benefits are immortal life and accommodations in the land of Israel. So it's a good job with some pretty decent perks. Um, but the message to us really is that of preparation. Now is the time to prepare. Prophecy is designed to awake us out of our sleep and help us to realize that the Lord is here. And whatever struggles we may be going through day to day, that now, as you read in Romans 11, or 13, 11, now is the time, knowing the time, it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than what we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us prepare, brothers and sisters and young people, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we see that, that freight train of activity as all those things are going on, the story doesn't stop. It just keeps on going and it rolls right into the kingdom, which of course, God willing, we will be involved in. And he is willing. The question is, are you and I willing? Is that the most important thing in our lives that we're gonna set our focus and our hearts and our minds upon that so that when the Lord comes, he finds us not only ready but excited to meet him and begin the rest of our lives, which will go on for eternity.